somebody off i don't know how you managed to throw me off you're an improviser kate i was trying to say it the way you said it and then i laughed imagining myself saying it the way that you said it well i am hilarious how are you kate <laughs> i'm good i am currently supping on some peppermint tea and some fizzy grape juice fizzy grape juice with alcohol content um i have something to talk about okay. um i feel like this is confession I feel... Sit down then. I, I am sitting down. They <laughs> don't be, know that. It would be hilarious if everyone just assumed that we spent every podcast standing up. Um, I, uh, the other day, I was walking home, uh, I accidentally ended up in a Tory campaign video. <laughs> Everyone's glaring. Um, I was going home, I was walking through Stratford Centre, I'd just been to see a show, had some vegan burgers at Brewdog, had some good non-alcoholic beer, I was Trying like... Mm, really, really hard to like... Living my liberal vegan life, and then I ran into an amazing woman called Lorraine, who runs Lola's Homeless in Stratford, that do amazing things for homeless people, and she looked at me and was like, oh my goodness! You'll never guess who's here. And she grabbed me and she pulled me around. And Rory Stewart was there. It was about 10.30 at night. And he was filming a thing for his, I guess, his mayoral campaign. And he spent the whole night in Stratford and then slept on Lorraine's floor. Anyway, so the next day, Lorraine tags me in the video of Lola's. And my back made a cameo appearance because I spoke to him for about 30 seconds telling him... All the great stuff that Lorraine was doing but it is quite funny because it is clearly me and I'm clearly on a Tory video. My friend George his dad's arm ended up in Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Well I wish that I'd ended up in Robin Hood bloody Prince of Thieves rather than the Tory. Look I don't like the Tories but I wish Rory Stewart had won the Conservative thing. Speaking of people that accidentally end up on camera talking to people from political parties that they don't necessarily agree with, hello guest. Hey, what a segue that was. <laughs> I wasn't it, expecting that. It would have made more sense had I given context. I know. Yeah, I have no idea what she's talking about. Okay, the context of that, this is, we've gone straight into the deep end. <laughs> I think it was like a Vice thing I did where I had to hang around the EDL. And Tom Robinson, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but before that, can you tell us who you are? <laughs> I'm Kai, Samra. <laughs> I felt very like Christmas morning vibes. This is like, I say that, I don't I don't drink this on Christmas morning, but I can imagine one word drink. What's this, Carver? I think I'm it's a... Carver. It's, it's actually just called like fizzy white wine. <laughs> Mm. But it got good reviews when I googled what it was online. That That's means good. it's just not from a place called Carver or Prosecco. That's how it works. I right? got I got to say though, I'm with you because I didn't do it last Christmas, but the Christmas before I had like Prosecco with uh, orange juice in it, so it okay. does feel quite Christmas. Like a mimosa. Yeah. Like a Bucks Fizz mimosa. That's it. All right. And, and my mum was like, my mum was like, "What are you doing? Get me a coffee." <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bad. An Irish coffee, six and booze in there. <laughs> That's what we're about in this family. I'm going to upset both of you now. St I mean, five bowls, in, five bowls in later and nobody was complaining. <laughs> As standard, we, we tend to have a bottle of Prosecco or Carver and a little bit of caviar and salmon for breakfast on Christmas Day. 
Shoot me. So you have salmon and caviar on what? Like, like I guess it's not like hobbies. Things. This is the most upper middle class thing. Yeah, you've been in a Tory video. <laughs> You're talking about having caviar. We're only like 10 minutes into this podcast. Everyone else must be just like... About diversity. <laughs> oh my God. We're sipping like fizzy white wine. In all fairness, I never told Rory Stewart that I liked him. So. Yeah, Did carver socialists. That's what we are. This socialist. isn't even carver, is it? This is fizzy grape juice socialists. <laughs> it could ever. be Lambrini for all you know. I might Google how much this bottle is worth because it might be Lambrini. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Lambrini. Um, so Kai, you are a comedian and a writer and an interviewer of left wing. Right, right, right wing. <laughs> it's the other one. The other left. The other wing. <laughs> So does that mean you go around interviewing? So, um, yeah, like alluding to my debut Edinburgh show last year. And basically I had to, like at the end of it, it was like a Vice thing that I did with Tommy Robinson and I had to hang around the EDL. And I don't really know what the point of it was. I kind of, they didn't like me. That's basically what I found out by the end of it. So it wasn't much, but. This was your debut hour, was it? Yeah. And what was it called and what was it about? It was called Underclass. Hi guys, Holly here, just interrupting really quickly to let you know that we actually recorded this episode before the pandemic really hit in this country, so you will notice a distinct lack of us talking about it. Kai was due to bring his second full-length show to the Edinburgh Fringe this summer, but you guessed it, it never happened, so we are talking about his first show, Underclass, and the issues that that tackles. Issues like class, race and family, and also his experience with a brilliant charity called Centre Point, which is a London-based organisation that helps young homeless people find their feet in the city. So without further ado, let's go back to pre-lockdown times, before any of us had any idea that we were about to spend the next five months locked in our flats. Basically it was about, like, so I said it's centre point, I'm talking about the homeless thing, that was like, you, like a youth centre as you start, so it was like going from there to doing comedy. So it got produced by Soho Theatre, and it's on the same street as... Centerpoint. Uh, Centerpoint. It's on Dean Street. So Centerpoint's right at the bottom, near Chinatown. And then mm-hmm. it's like this weird kind of like metaphor of that. So yeah, so that's what it was about. But it's kind of weird, like I was, was kind of saying this in the show, is that I never really hung around with a lot of rich people and started doing comedy and obviously going to the Edinburgh Fringe, Fringe Festival. And I was like, oh my God, they're so confident. Like they're just so confident. And I just couldn't believe how confident everyone was, I think. But I never really ever felt poor, obviously, because I was just in a quite a... I was on an estate in Coventry. So, like, I remember I had a birthday party one year at McDonald's. Honestly, it was like, I felt like I was like the Great Gatsby for my Happy Meals. Just like, <laughs> it was like, this is amazing. And I talk about this in the show with even stuff like sort of racism or class issues. Honestly, like, I never experienced that growing up. You know, like, you can't be racist in Birmingham. Like, you'd just be exhausted. This is like, <laughs> so, you know, and you know the Whacking Phoenix speech recently, he did the BAFTAs. He talks about race and things like that. And like now, I was really like, oh, it's really good that he said that. But if I, if I was a kid, like growing up, and I saw that, I'd just be like, what's he talking about? Like, I wouldn't have, have related to that. You kind of only realise it once you go into the upper echelons of education or like the arts or, or things like that. So I felt I was kind of lucky, like not lucky growing up, but I just, I actually didn't ever feel like I was that, you know. There's something in that, in the sense that a lot of people have had to become woke. In my mid-twenties, I looked around at everyone I grew up with and realised that they all lived in, you know, eight-bedroom houses with paddocks and swimming pools and stuff. And I was like, oh, actually, okay, uh, that's not normal. Mm. You know, I, th- I think everyone has to have a moment where they're like, okay, so people have been sexist towards me or people have been racist towards me or I've been treated in this way and I've treated other people in that way. And it was the norm and we're trying to change that now. 
And you do have to have that eureka moment where you're like, okay, I'm a part of this. I'm part of the problem and the problem is affecting me at the same time. Interesting that, Kai, you were saying that you almost didn't know all this stuff was going on because mm. actually your childhood was like around people like you and also very diverse. Yeah. So it was like, that's another argument for diversity because it's like, yeah, it's so tiring. We're in Stratford, East London right now. Try being racist. Like, mm. it, you just get so exhausted <laughs> shouting at every non-white person who walked past the yeah. various different cultures. Like, this is another sort of narrative of the show. It's about my brother. And uh, my brother, like, funnily enough, he got a full scholarship into a private school. But he was only there for, like, a year. And he was, like, the hardest kid in my state. Like, he was the toughest kid. He used to do boxing karate. Like, this the toughest kid in my state. Um, and super smart as well. And he got bullied really badly at the school. And, like, we never really understood why. Like, me and my mum were just, like, we just had a go at him, basically. Because we'd never really experienced it. And he was just... I remember him always being, like, I'm just not rich enough or sort of white enough or posh enough to hang around here. And we were just, like, oh, stop using the race. Like, we would say that because we'd never experienced it. And then I suppose I probably experienced it doing stand-up and, like, the art. So, you're, like, if someone does say something to you... I've had quite a lot, like, doing stand-up. And I'm like, I could just punch you in the face if I wanted to. But you like, you can't because then if I did, then it's just like, then people go, oh yeah, he's obviously that kid that came from that. So he's obviously going to do that. It's like, you realise there's actually nothing you kind of can do. You become but... like a monolith when you're the only minority in the room. Like... Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, when you get, whenever you get things as well, people are like, oh, it's just there to stick a box, that type of thing. That was another great thing about uh, Joaquin Phoenix's speech, which was his acknowledgement that actually it's not just about him being the best in this context of Joker, which mm. he probably was, mm. but it's the fact that there was no equity to get him there. He was like, I'm here because of my privileges. People who are not white or not male, they don't want special treatment, but mm. me as a white man has had special treatment. And that, I think, was the most important thing he said. It was acknowledging the fact that all these like diversity initiatives to get other people in the room is actually about redressing the balance that straight white men have had all this leg up the entire yeah. time. And I don't think most straight white men realise that they've been having a leg up the entire time. Yeah, I think, I think I suppose it's everyone's responsibility, isn't it? To like, if that's that blind spot. Even like things growing up, we never like talks about like male privilege and stuff like that. It's only like now in that conversation, you're like, oh my God, it is insane. It's these things that obviously as a guy, you're just completely not aware of. And obviously I suppose it's like that comes with like conversation and things like that. And it, yeah, it's, it's almost like not asking for handouts. It's just like, just let it be a meritocracy. You know, that's literally what it is. I think we're probably the last generation that's really going to have to do the work ourselves. Whereas in schools now, they are starting to teach all of this stuff from sex education to diversity in families to all the other things. <laughs> I mm. think as long as we fight for it, we're going to be the last generation. But if you look at what happened with sex ed, with mm. people not liking, accepting that gay people exist and trans people exist, that could not work. So yeah. as long as, But I think you're right, as long as we fight for it. Yeah, 100%. I, I've probably made a mistake, I think, of being like, oh, I think we are getting much better. Like, we are becoming more work. And I realise, actually, it's not. It's just that I've left my hometown and I'm starting to go higher up in the arts and I'm meeting more people <laughs> who are just more woke. And it's just actually like the my environment is becoming more woke and more maybe more liberal. But in fact, were you talking about the school in Birmingham? You know, there was like these huge... Yeah, yeah so that's Phillips's constituency. Yeah, so that's like near, like literally just down the road from where I was born. So you think, okay, well, if that was like my only environment. And I've probably made that mistake where I did actually think, oh, everyone's just getting better. 
but really, we are in like such a left-wing metropolitan bubble. Chamber. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, Brexit's not going to happen. Like, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's going to be in power. And you're like, I oh no. a single person that wants Brexit. Yeah. I yeah. was teaching an outreach project in the north of England. And I was sat in the staff room. And the teachers were having a conversation about, she's one of those vegans. <laughs> oh, shit. It, it, was like, it was like being in a sketch. But... I had to I had to check myself and be like, okay, don't you dare speak up because I could feel their eyes on me like she's from London. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bizarre. But yeah, I guess it's 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 an echo chamber. Yeah, and I think like obviously class is like a huge huge thing. Like I remember having like such a chip on my shoulder when I was younger, and people like where I'm from like do just like hate people from London and do mm-hmm. hate people who are in the arts or like. I remember my dad. I hadn't seen my dad for like ages, and we were watching Mash Report. Obviously, Nish Kumar's in it and stuff. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of good, isn't it? It's an Indian person. And he's like, yeah, but he's just like a posh Indian person. I was like, what do you mean? He's still an Asian guy. And he's like, oh, yeah, but money just whitens. It's this thing, I think, with like class and stuff. But when you don't have it, or especially where I'm from, you know, people like Nigel Farage obviously wrongly like kind of tap into that, like, tap into that hate or Tommy Robinson kind of capitalize on that, like that feeling of disenfranchisement. Like, hey, look, we are listening to you and obviously just kind of utilizing that for their own good. But yeah. It's funny, we do talk about class a lot on this podcast. We talked about it with Sam Oatley, the Doctor Who teeth guy. And he uh, was talking to us a lot about representation of accents in the media. And class is just something that we don't talk about because no one can get their head around it. And no one can quite figure out why we don't want to talk about it. I think part of it might be because it's not as obvious as it used to be. Mm. Like, when you look at certain cultures and they have a literal caste system, Mm. that's what it used to be. You weren't even allowed to wear certain outfits if you were of a certain class. You had to be in a certain area of the bar. And then the idea that you would ever marry above or below your station was utterly unthinkable then the way that white supremacy has created the western structures and even the non-western structures we live in there's classism in that because we've created an underclass of people who aren't white Mm. and so classism is now not just about where you literally got your money and if you have the word lord in your name it's also about race sexuality gender it's all of these things whereas before you couldn't marry somebody who wasn't white and mm. you couldn't marry somebody who was gay so it was just yeah people think oh there's like a box ticking thing or like diversity is a good thing but it's not always i mean like the fact that you got like pretty Patel. do you think that's good for age like obviously not it makes no difference it's very similar to when taylor swift backed the democratic candidate in tennessee because the woman who would have been the first woman running that post was so awful and did not stand for gay rights, women's rights mm. even, and was just the worst kind of person. So yeah. it's better to have a man who believes in your rights than a yeah. woman who does. Yeah, I suppose like Jeremy Corbyn would be a lot better for ethnic minorities and people to put it that way. So I don't know, I think it's more multifaceted as well. Like When I kind of like do workshops with like Centrepoint, kids and stuff you realize there's things that like it's more multifaceted privilege i mean like some people have just like never had a mum and dad tell them they're good and then you, you can completely see it in some of the kids and you're just like you're just never ever gonna make it it gets multifaceted down to things like parenting oh there's so much there's so much so you talk mm. about a lot of really sensitive personal subjects in your show and i'm assuming in your next one as well why do you think it's important to use comedy to 
to vent, <laughs> I guess. So what was really weird with, with the Edinburgh show was that I didn't really talk about Center Point that much in it. And it's really funny. That was the bit that everyone took out. Also, like the Guardian reviewed it and it's just in the broadsheet reviews and they just wow. talk about that. Yeah, they talked about Ex-homeless that. man, and it, and it, No, but it was like, it was a big review and it was like in detail of everything. And I was just like, oh my God. This is the thing. I actually never, ever, ever talked about it. So if you talk to, I've only had like two kind of ex-girlfriends, like long-term type thing and... I'd never talk to them about it. They wouldn't have known. Like, none of my friends would have known. So, Wow. Um, what's, yeah. what's that like, having to deal with your narrative just being exploded? Also, what's that like going forward, deciding how much you do and do not want to talk about it in the future? Well, I would always have this mindset that I'm like, you're competing against other comedians, and, you know, most of them are literally, like their parents are Russian oligarchs and they've been to eat and like literally like I'm not even exaggerating like I'm talking about people who got nominated so I used to think oh my god it's, people are gonna think I'm really great if I'm like hey I don't even go I haven't done a degree I was at center point but people don't think that people are just like great we can pay this guy a quarter as much and it's weird because like and I remember someone said this to me actually so, oh yeah you probably just shouldn't say that and it's only recently I've actually realized people are like oh great like we'll put this guy in we'll show how like left-wing liberal we are but we'll pay him, like, not as much. It's one extreme to the other. And can you talk about it? Because we've mentioned Centrepoint a lot, but we might need to fill the listeners in a bit. Yeah, Centrepoint is just, like, a youth permanent centre. So it's for kids who are, like, 16 to 25. They're amazing. Like, they do little schemes. So for me, I was super lucky. I was in Coventry, and then I was about 16, 17. And because of, sort of, like, reasons at home, ended up getting trained to London, started sleeping rough for, like, couple of weeks wow. and then went to Centrepoint I was really lucky because obviously this was way before like universal credit and things like that like now it's impossible you have to uh, you, you sign on you get your first payment like two months and you have to go three times a week it's just, they just perfectly made it like this weird like Kafka-esque system to get like a penny out of it and like I was really lucky so I was only there for like a week they managed to sign me on they got me a flat in like Shadwell so they were great and they were like what do you want to do I said oh, I want to be in a band right for some reason I'd never played instruments before um and they <laughs> hooked me up with the roundhouse and they were great i went on gumtree put a little adverts out for like drummers and stuff like that i've always been super ambitious so i was like cool we're gonna get signed and stuff we got signed uh, to a guy called dave bianchi he did like charlie xcx and the night five before us Holy and shit. yeah and then we like supported the libertines and stuff as a professional musician, this is very jealous-making. Kai just walks into rooms and goes, this is how it's going to be. And then... I'm definitely not that. But I was <laughs> like, I'm just fucking poor. I needed the money. And I was, there was a string of events which led me not to do music and to do comedy, which is what the next show's about. But um, it's really funny because a lot of people at Centrepoint, they always want to get in, into the arts. Because I suppose if you don't have like an education, I suppose the only way you can really like quote-unquote make it is through like sports or the arts and obviously if you're 18 you're probably not going to like take up football and that's why I think like social building the arts just needs to be like so massively improved this is just so geared towards people from a certain yeah. background but really if you're from Centrepoint or you're home it's like there's no real way you can actually make 
money. Like you can't start your own business anymore. It's almost impossible to do that. It is true. When you start a business, unless your main aim is to make fuckloads of money, you yeah. have to give up stuff for free. And unless you have other sources of income, you're fucked. Exactly. And I, I, this industry is literally all about connections and who you know, 100%. How does, um, it, how does it feel like in terms of being a stand-up, you're always around people who are like related to oligarchs and stuff and you hadn't really experienced the kind of racism and classism that you do experience now. Do you find that that comes from audiences more or do you find that it comes actually from the business more? Everyone kind of knows what the industry is actually like. And I feel like the reason why people are so sort of woke and so left, like left-wing and liberal is definitely put on that brand. One, because they know it's kind of sells. So for example, like this one guy who shall remain nameless, which wasn't very nice to me. And he knew my background because he saw my show. And then did a gig. And it was just full of rich white kids. And he was like, hey, we're going to give the money to Centerpoint. And I was like, oh my God. You definitely saw my show. You purposely went out and said certain things that basically I was here to tick a box and stuff like that. And everyone told me about it. I can't really go, oh wait, that person did that. Because everyone's going to go, look at his Twitter. It's like the most woke person. And I think people say like, oh, Sandra Comedy's oh, it's too left-wing and liberal and really woke. But I think by its very nature, it has to be. Like, in the same way that all adverts are very diverse. Because, obviously, all adverts for businesses are there to make money, and it's not left-wing and liberal. So they have to put on a thing of, like, hey, we're different to what we are. But that's when you realise that, like, modern conservatism and republicanism and whatever is actually hard 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 right and they think everything is liberal that mm. is not even liberal it's just like basic centrism yeah, some yeah. of it's like obama some of his fucking policies were like what we would consider pretty right wing but yeah, because yeah. he was black we're all like here's the bastion of liberal values and he did the gay thing which incidentally was joe biden our view of what is or isn't left or right wing has become totally skewed mm. and so comedy is considered a liberal thing whereas actually it's been a bastion of kind of keeping the status quo for fucking ever 100%. and it's now finally somebody like hannah gadsby comes along mm. and breaks literally breaks and puts back together comedy that's what i really liked about your show kai is the important thing about the show was the story that's what kept people gripped a story that a lot of the Soho theatre white middle class audiences may not have heard before. Everyone was like, oh, it's a really political show. But I never, it was just a story, basically. And I've done that on purpose, like, massively. I've never really talked about anything. I've, like, gone past that point where I'm completely apathetic to politics. Like, I really genuinely don't give a shit. <laughs> what I like to do is obviously just, like, have stories, I suppose. People can come up with their own ideas. And also, then no one can have a go at you and have it, like, and be like, well, actually, I don't agree with that. Because you're just like... I'm just telling you a story, so it's it's fine. So it's mad up. how they try and politicise just a reality. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, well, look at you with your immigration story, but he's just my granddad. Yeah. And if this posh white guy can talk about his granddad being Winston Churchill, yeah, then I can talk about exactly. And it's like it's almost you can't not be political. It's like saying I don't speak language. Everyone's political in some way. So, do you think that? I mean, you were homeless for a while and then going from that to this success has had an effect on how you deal with things. So, before we went with Dave Bianchi, we went with a guy called Anton Brooks and he was at Sub Pop Records in Seattle and he worked with Nirvana. So like every Nirvana documentary, his face is up there and he was like a 
like literally like a father figure to me. Obviously, I was only a kid at the time. I was like 18. I'd just come from Centerpoint. So I was like, oh my God, what was Kurt Cobain like? And I remember him saying something. Apparently there was an interview, I think, where Kurt Cobain was asked like, he was really depressed as a kid and he was like a real loner. And they're like, oh my God, you went from that to now selling out arenas with oh, tens of thousands of people screaming your name, knowing the words to every song that you wrote. How do you feel? And he goes, oh, I feel awful. Because every time I look at on Nirvana fans, I just look at the kids who used to bully me at school. And it's this thing of like, no matter how high you go, and this is something I, I still kind of, I think I'm much better now, but it's like, you'll be at a certain point in your life where your status is very low and no one will give a shit about you. So like, obviously I was literally outside Sofia, Theatre, like, asking for change when I was like 16, 17. To then go and those same people being really nice to you, but you don't feel happy. You just think like, almost then you think how fickle everyone else mm. is. And then you find it really difficult maybe maintaining relationships because you're just like, but then I think now I'm at a point where I don't really hang around with like a lot of people. I think I've got like close knit people, like four or five people. I really am mates with who are like the people I hung around with and was just starting stand up. And I don't really care about being friends with like bigger comedians and stuff. Because I think a lot of people are. Like a lot of people like, they want to be seen hanging around with like a certain comedian. And you put it on Instagram, you're like, hey, we're friends. And your stock goes higher. And then you realise, you're like, oh, there's definitely going to be a point where it kind of goes down. I've learned that. And I've probably, as a result of that, become a little bit more like, okay, who are the people in my life that like make me feel good? And that if everything went to shit, they'd still be there type of thing. But it's not good to go living your life with that narrative in your head. So so in the end of my show, I talk about Tommy Robinson being this person that's like come to my dad's hometown and politicised everyone to the right. So like a really distant, quote unquote, like monster person. And then obviously at the end, you realise, then I find out that I'm going to meet him. And right at the end of it, um, he's like just clearly unhappy. And we just end up arguing for like a whole day. And um, we've only got like a minute left and I'm like, fuck. And it was like a terrible interview. We were just arguing. We kind of got nowhere. And I was like, uh, are you happy? And he was like, no. And I was like, oh, what about like your kids and like your wife and your parents? Like, what do they think about what you do? And he's like, they hate what I do. They don't speak to me. They can't live a normal life and stuff. And he really opened up. And I was like, oh, there must have been something that happened to you, which went from living a normal life. Like he went to university. He wanted to become like a pilot or something to do with airplanes. Or something. Um, I think engineering. And then just completely changed. And I was like, what happened? And he talks about being a kid. He got bullied really badly, which is kind of like one of the, the themes of the show. And I'm like, are any of the bullies like Muslim? And he's like, yeah. I said, oh, if you could go back and talk to your, the little nine-year-old boy, you, like knowing everything that you know now, what would you say to him? And just as he starts like getting really teary and really vulnerable, he just got really angry. He goes, I tell him to stop being a little pussy and stick up for himself. And it's like, it's just like this thing of, oh my God, you're still carrying that shit. I think if I wasn't a comedian, I'd probably be like a youth worker and stuff. Like I really enjoy that. There's loads of kids who are just super aggressive, who are in gangs and stuff. Like if somebody looks at them funny, they'll just throw down and be like, I'm gonna fuck you up. But really it's just, it's just anxiety. And it's just that fight or flight being kicked in. Some people get triggered by something that happens to them, like some sort of trauma and then get the shakes and just need to get away. Or some people just get the red mist and it's like that fight or flight. Then you realize, and then you, I think you look at everybody a bit different. And even people like, who are like horrific people, like Tommy Robinson, who was obviously the cause of all that racist abuse and stuff. And it's like, Oh, you're just a kid who got bullied. He's like, who hurt you, man? Yeah, who hurt you? <laughs> there was a thing, you know, the Britain First documentary, that was, it was really interesting because it started off being like, this is the biggest movement. And then they were like, oh, this is a bunch of fake Facebook likes <laughs> right. and like 12 people. But the woman in particular from Britain First, because the guy has tried to run for every office in the world and lost, but she, there was something about her, they're like super Christian and 
I can't remember what it was, but at the end of the documentary, it was so blatantly obvious. I think it might have come from her father and something he'd said or done or not done. Mm. And it was so obvious that every single thing she was doing in Britain First came from this one yeah. unfinished business aspect of her life and her father and her upbringing that was not adding up, but did add up into what led her to yeah. this going to Luton to right. argue with a bunch of non-white people and then make it look like they started it. It all made complete sense in this one like 30-second segment about her dad. Definitely. I couldn't agree with that more. I have met and known people who have reacted in extreme ways to the same level. Your pain is relative and your experiences are relative. And it's just how those experiences are dealt with. If they're dealt with badly, then they explode. Yeah, especially when you're a kid. I mean, like, that's when you kind of, your whole personality is formed. And, and I don't speak to my brother anymore when we were really close, when we were growing up. And I remember my friend Kitty Edgo's producer is really, really great. She was like, this whole thing is about your brother. And I was like, no, it's not. I don't really care about my brother. My work in progress was called Brothers. And she was like, you could have talked about anything in the entire world and you've called your show Brothers. And you're just like, oh, yeah. But in my head, I just genuinely don't. But obviously, all these things are kind of subconscious, right? Do you find that show tiring? Draining. But so I remember doing all the shows in previews and they were really good. And then I go to the Edinburgh Fringe, changed it just a little bit. And every show everyone will be bawling their eyes out crying at the end of it but we can definitely come across as almost flippant when we talk about our own experiences and our own pain because to us they're so normal and they're not yeah they're not out of the ordinary and and they're always there and when you then tell that to someone else they can sometimes react in a way that you might not expect because to you it's normal and to them it's like (gasps) We were having this conversation, someone said to me, like, imagine someone in your life that everyone's probably got, where there could be, like, someone in your family who you just think is such a, a letdown and have just screwed you over in so many ways and it just hasn't been there, quote-unquote, just an absolute loser, and you just think, oh, you have never there for me, whatever. And then what if someone like God had come down and just told you that that person genuinely was, like, trying their best? You would change your way of thinking and it's like really weird how you think oh actually if I knew that person was actually trying their best and I think everyone kind of is every human being is just trying their best at the end of the day and like we judge people so much and like if you go oh maybe just everyone's just trying their best oh it's kind of all right that was deep man (laughs) (laughs) I feel bad I feel like I've got some more laughs here I'm actually a comedy gig now and now I feel like I'm like gonna cry Um, should we should we do all the questions? Yeah. At the end of every Diversify episode, we ask a couple of questions to every guest. Mm. The first one, the most important, the most vitally politically telling is, what's, what's your, your favourite Disney, Disney movie? <laughs> so I've only seen about three. So it's weird that you said that, because honestly, we had this conversation about two days ago, and someone said Beauty and the Beast, and I was like, I've never seen that. I've only seen The Lion King, Aladdin, and... The Jungle Book. Congratulations on the most diverse. The ones that are just about rich white women. I was yeah, going to say, can I mean, we book someone else for this slot now? Because I don't. Yeah, no, I don't care. That says it all. You've only seen the old school diverse ones. I'm surprised you haven't seen Pocahontas and Mulan. Mulan. Yeah. Moana. Yeah, it's kind of weird. All the kind of fame lead women Disney ones are like super like, fuck you. Whereas like something like Cinderella, Snow White are kind of like. Having fucking melts. <laughs> <Passion>. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's related. I used to watch Aladdin all the time. 
There was a great thing that somebody I saw the other day. I think it was a meme. I love how Aladdin was offered these wishes to change everything from the genie. Mm. And his whole thing is he's basically from the underclass. Mm. And so instead of wishing to end the class system right. that oppresses him, yes. that would change everything, <laughs> he actually wishes yeah. to just be part of uh, the <laughs> really? other classes. That's really funny. Kind and of just... the human condition. And oh, it loops back that. to what we were talking about <laughs> at the beginning, like why does no one want to talk about class? Because everyone's yeah, hoping that eventually 100%. they'll get a little bit higher I up. think that, because there's a, there's a really good comedian, like American comedian called Spencer Carmichael, and he's from like the projects. When he started doing well, everyone's like, oh, you've got to, like, give back to your community. He's like, fuck my community. My community stole my bike. Like, <laughs> and it is that thing of, like, if you maybe come from a certain background and then you do well, and everyone's like, oh, you've got to give back. And you just be like, I was only in this to be rich. There's a certain <laughs> working class mentality that I understand of it. It's like, oh, a friend of mine was telling me about her uncle who now runs a huge amount of newspapers and is like a very very rich but she was saying he came from nothing and so when he rose to the top exactly yeah. the same conversation would happen and he'd be like fuck off if i can make it anyone can they're just not working hard enough i think that's a big thing for like people who are right wing and left wing because like say off some head like margaret thatcher she's obviously supposed to be like a symbol of being right wing and capitalist and whatever but she's obviously a woman who became Prime Minister in like what the 80s like from a comparatively working class background from her point of view she's like I made it in obviously like the 80s as a woman from a working class background so in her head she's probably thought I've become Prime Minister like a guy from Liverpool can go get a fucking job <laughs> even like Sir Alan Sugar he's really white wing and I think that's that's a big thing as well I think a lot of a lot of it is down to luck really like no matter how well you do or how big you'd get from where you've come from you can't deny that like luck's got a big part of that because if you say i deserve it then you're going to look at someone who hasn't gone you're not working hard enough but i think that's how we deal with the fact that in other countries in particular like oh we can bomb syria because we're from the best society and mm. if you actually look at the reality of the situation we're no better or worse than other people. We're just born in a in a particular time, in a particular skin, mm. in a particular situation. And some people are lucky enough. To, well, I guess my thing is when I'm the reason why I'm more left wing is because I'd like to give more people the opportunity to live in a tenable situation rather than the untenable situation that we've created for them. Uh, apart, and Rory Stewart will make all that better. <laughs> he won't. Nice. I'm not a Tory. What a callback! But it is. It is. <laughs> I'm nothing but good with a callback. That's uh, not one funny. of the tenets of improv. Um, so next question: Would you consider yourself an activist? Mm, would I call myself an activist? Or no? But I think the reason why I got into comedy was because, like, if you actually look at the kind of the route that I went down, so I got signed. To, I went with Avalon, which are kind of like notorious for being very white in Oxbridge. I think I did purposely go into places which were really white and posh, and was like had a very fuck you attitude, and that probably came across as being quite aggressive. But I think if I actually look at it, I did purposely go right. I'm gonna go with Avalon. It was almost like no, I'm gonna put myself in this position. And also, when I did the Surrey Theatre Workshop, I was the only non-white person out of like probably like 200 people, but yeah, so it was, it was almost, I just I just like it, just up for a ruckus. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck you. More and more, when we ask that question, people are like, what? I'm an activist. I just feel things. And I think that that's a better way of being, because if you name yourself an activist and put yourself 
forward in that way. Oh, I don't know, a lot of people that are like militantly activists are also quite angry. I think a lot of people who aren't activists are angry. Yeah, also, yeah, I'm I not, mean, yeah, what yeah. I mean is my, <laughs> my activism pacifies me. That's right. why I started let, this. Let me rephrase it. I think that if you're just doing it because it's, it's in you and you feel like you want it to be part of what you do, I think that can be more effective than what can turn into performative wokeness, is what I mean. Yeah, also, I don't think I'm that opinionated. Someone can really easily change my opinion about stuff <laughs> to quite an insane degree. I'm always like, if we talk about anything and someone says a good point, I'm always kind of like, yeah, you're probably right, actually. But I think that's good. I think it's good to have a, to want to change yourself as well, not just the world. Yeah, I think there are certain things that for me I need to stick with and, yeah. and like the basic tenets of what I believe uh, just society are. But yeah. that doesn't mean that there isn't some value in what other people say. So yeah, actually, yeah. you know, I think what modern right wing thinking has become conservatism in 2019 to 20 and particularly republicanism in America, it is just anti everything I believe in. But that doesn't mean that conservatism as an original theory mm. is inherently wrong. And that doesn't mean that when somebody says, yes, but this, this and this, mm. I can't go, that's a good point and I will rethink that. I just think at the, at the moment we've got to a point where a lot of what people, in my opinion, on the right are saying, I'm like, you literally have no facts. Like, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, global yeah. warming is like, just why are we even engaging with your version of global warming? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, not so to that warming. extent. Like, someone was like, global warming isn't a thing. They'll be like, that's not true. But it's right to be able to go, what I believe is the better way it doesn't make it perfect. What we mm. have at the moment is that I have to be 100% right and you have to be 100% wrong. 100% agree with this ideology or this ideology when actually... It's a bit more nuanced than yeah. that. Um, final question is in this world where we're becoming more and more polarised. Mm. Again, it's not like it's the first time to have happened. No. But in this time where we're polarised and particularly people who are, well, let's not even say left or right, but liberal minded are just feeling like everything we stand for is being attacked and our rights are genuinely in danger. Mm. It's important to remember that we are winning victories occasionally. So we like to end on what we call a little bit of sunshine, which is, in your opinion, is there something that's going on right now, either in your business or the world at large, which is making you feel like, here's a little bit of sunshine to come and create a little rainbow through the rain. People aren't laughing at penis jokes in open mics anymore. What? <laughs> Thank God I'm not on the open mic. Throws the table. Um, okay, someone said this thing to me the other day, actually, because I was probably yeah, very pessimistic and have a pessimistic view of the world, especially everything that's going on now. Um, and someone said, people think it's like it's kind of impossible to change the world. But if you think about it, everything in the world is based on ideas. For example, like money doesn't mean anything. The reason it means something is because we've all collectively agreed that it means something. Mm -hmm. So really, if we all just agreed that like money wasn't a thing, then it wouldn't be a thing. And I think then you can change the world because then it's all about collectively having some consensual agreement through everyone. They'll go, hey, if we all just agree this and all, all everything that we have is based on just an, uh, a cumulative consensus that we all think this means something. So really it's all about ideas and all agreeing with each other as opposed to actual things. We all collectively agree not to murder each other most of the time. <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. big plus. That's yeah. A pretty, that's a pretty old old philosophy. Who used that as an argument in the olden My days? My dad. Um, someone did. Uh, moving on. Give me a P. 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 Give me an L. 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 Give me a pair of Uggs. Uggs. What does that spell? Uh. 
plugs. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, time for plugs. I got bored of going plugs, 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 plugs. Kai, are you on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm hardly ever on there. Help him create his Twitter identity. It's um, just Kai Samra for everything. Luckily, there's no other Kai Samras about. K-A-I-S-A-M-R-A. Thank you. That's like Give an AMSR thing. Like 10 points to me. This is not just any Kai Samra. Um, are you on Instagram or anything? Yeah, Kai Samra. <laughs> uh, we are less consistent than Kai. We are on Twitter at DiversifyPod, hashtag DiversifyPod. And we are on Instagram at DiversifyPodcast. Because I think I, miss, I took the advice of somebody not UK, when we were originally doing our handles where they told me to go for podcast and pod. And we I was could like, change this that is stupid. Now, yeah, well, it's too late now. See, three seasons in, I'm just going to stick to it. Kate's on Twitter. Kai, what's my... <laughs> Kay, yeah. <laughs> uh, Kate Lois Elliott with two, two L's and... Two T's. Two T's. And the same on Instagram, because she's also consistent. Um... Thank you for listening. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for supping on some bubbly something or other with us. <laughs> and yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe because it helps people find us, apparently. That's that's what Apple Podcast algorithm... That's what the Guilty Feminist told me. That's, <laughs> that's what the various podcasts say. That's what's down in the low. Our entire life is built on algorithms now. Just help us get some equity. Give us a rating. Even if you haven't listened to the podcast and you've accidentally tuned in to the end of this episode. Only give us a five. Only give us a five. <laughs>